0: This is Labor Wave Radio.
1: Ride it all out, like a bird in the sky, ride it all out, like you were bird. Fly it all out, like an eagle in sun, all out, like a you were a bird.
0: LaborWave Radio is an independent podcast sustained by our listeners. If you enjoy our show, you can support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash laborwave. Based on your membership tier, you'll receive gifts, including stickers, illustrated zines, and original made t-shirts with the LaborWave logo and designs on it. We are re-releasing an episode from our archives that we did with Marion Garneau about two years ago called you say you want a general strike. Made some audio improvements to the original episode, and we have a lot of episodes in development right now, so until we can get those ready to be published, I'm reissuing this really good conversation with Marianne Garneau, arguing that general strikes in the European context have not proven to be as powerful and effective a tactic for unions as popularly imagined. With that, I hope you enjoy the episode
2: a moment where it's very typical to hear people call for a general strike in the United States. At the moment of this recording, we're about to see an upcoming week of climate action, where it's supposed to culminate into a general strike, I believe, of one hour. And so your article kind of tries to take a clear-eyed view and assessment of what are general strikes and are they actually an effective tactic to be imported into the United States. And doing that, you look more specifically at Europe. So in the European context, can you define, just for our listeners, what is a general strike and what are the real purposes of them?
3: I looked at a bunch of scholarship that's been done on general strikes. How do you define a general strike? That'll probably depend on who you ask. But the scholarship that I read defined it as a political protest, actually. It's against government policy and it's usually called by the, it's called by one, of, one or more of the trade union confederations. So in North America, we have the AFL CIO and kind of change to win. There they have all kinds of trade union confederations, socialist ones and communist ones and whatever. And those trade union confederations will call a general strike, which is calling upon their members, but also inviting the broader population, workers affiliated with other unions students, um, retirees, you know, the whole general population to mobilize, it's usually one day or a few hours, against some policy proposal. And so it's directed at government and it's targeting the current government in charge on a particular policy proposal that they are suggesting or asking for a particular policy change. So that's how those scholars have defined it.
2: And how is that distinct and separate from a strike that's geared more towards a workplace?
3: In Europe, unions don't have to have the exclusive bargaining capacity to represent workers in a workplace. In North America, it's all or nothing. There's an election, there's a certification process, and that union either represents all the workers or none at all. In Europe, there can be multiple different unions present in the same workplace— and when there's a strike, the workers will vote to go on strike, even if it was originally organized by only one of those unions, let's say. Whereas the general strikes, there is no vote taking place workplace to workplace. These are limited one day events. They are in a lot of ways like protests, but they do involve people actually leaving work not going to work. And so they do shut down workplaces, industries. It's very, very hard to get precise figures on what amount of participation they have and how many workplaces they shut down and what the overall economic impact is. But unlike in North America, the general strikes that are happening and being called in Europe, they do actually involve mass withdrawal of labor from the workplace.
2: And you know, in your article, a couple of things that make general strikes more possible in Europe as opposed to the United States. So could you explain why does it matter that they have more national union confederations? And also, what are some of the labor laws in place in Europe that allow for general strikes to be more prominent?
3: They have, as I said, multiple national union confederations. So think of on the level of the AFL, AFL-CIO, and those union confederations are sort of competing with one another for political leadership. So if the government says we're going to raise the retirement age, the unions will kind of look at each other and see what each other is about to do. And then maybe one of them will see that if the Socialist Union looks like they're going to start negotiating with the government on this issue, the Communist Union will come out possibly and say, well, we call a general strike. You know, so they're kind of competing with one another for leadership. That's the political way to understand them. But on a technical or legal level, there is a protected right to strike on these political matters. You are allowed to leave work and mobilize in the streets in relation to things like government policy in many countries in Europe. And there are actually some countries in Europe where that is not the case. Those legal protections are not in place, like in Germany or in the UK. And in those countries, there are no general strikes. So there's a protection of both the unions and trade union confederations that are calling these strikes, and there's protection for the workers who are participating in them that don't exist in North America. In North America, if you call your workers out on strike in relation to protesting government or government policy, you would be fined for violating you know, the Labor Relations Act. There are all kinds of restrictions in North America against secondary strikes and boycotts and pickets. and the sort of political deployment of strike tactics. Same as in the UK, where, again, they don't have that tactic. They don't use that general strike tactic there either. So on a technical level, there are reasons to expect that you're not going to get general strikes in North America.
2: And those uh, technical things, you make a really important insight about why the AFL-CIO that has a base and a constituency would be reluctant to ever actually participate in a general strike or call for one.
3: That's true. And the thing that you have in North America is that the people calling the general strikes are generally leftists. Within the DSA, there's some attempt to organize a general strike against reproductive labor. This sort of goes back to what you were saying at the beginning of the podcast, where it's not enough today to call a protest or a march. It has to be called the general strike, right? The people calling the general strikes in North America tend to be left groups. Those tend to be very small left groups. The call is not coming from unions or union confederations. And there's very little cost if you are simply a leftist or a left group in calling a general strike, right? If a union within the AFL-CIO or the AFL-CIO itself were to call a general strike, they can face legal penalties for doing that. If a random person simply puts out the idea of a general strike, there's very little cost, but there's also generally very little reward. In Europe, it really is the trade union confederations putting out the call for the general strike. And there isn't necessarily a legal cost because I said generally it's, it's either protected legally or just kind of tolerated in some countries. But if they don't manage to mobilize that general strike, then they have egg on their faces, right? There's an actual cost to them. They look as though they don't have political leadership. So that's another difference in cost between Europe and North America and who's calling them there versus who's calling them here. It almost seems
2: to me in the North American context, that what leftists are trying to do is really just expand the Overton window of like what we're allowed to even talk about in national narratives. I'm reminded of this line by Marx, I'm going to kind of butcher it. It's as if they're trying to seek to change the phrases of the world, but all they're actually going to accomplish is changing phrases and not the actual material base.
3: Well, and even that changing of phrases, I think, is very unfortunate because. Everything now is called a general strike. For a few years there, after Trump got elected, there were calls for a general strike, which never mobilized. People did not stream out of work. Factories and industries were not shut down. And now people don't really care if that's not what happens. They're still going to baptize it a general strike. You see that with what have you, the climate strike, this potential reproductive rights strike, the women's strike all of these different things that are called general strikes. Now it doesn't even seem to matter anymore if they don't have actual workforce or workplace participation. And that's too bad because I think that it's useful to have distinct categories for distinct things, especially if you are, you know, a socialist or a Marxist and you have a materialist understanding of history. But even just in general, it's useful to be able to make the distinction between a protest and a strike because there was something unique about the concept of a strike when it meant withholding labor.
2: You also mentioned in the later part of your article that what your impression is that people are trying to conjure up is this kind of romanticized, glamorized, sepia-tinged view of worker militancy from a time a bygone era when a general strike was like something that happened in Seattle in 1919 that really did shut down industry for uh, multiple weeks if not months. And also even more recently the things like the wildcat strikes that we've seen in West Virginia and other teacher strikes across the country. But you're pretty specific in clarifying that that is not really what a general strike looks like in Europe for the most part. As well, general strikes maybe don't capture worker militancy in the way that we kind of envision it does in the North American context. Why are general strikes tactics of weakened labor unions?
3: This is one of the kind of sad findings that I discovered when I dug into this research. One is that Uh, It's hard to import this tactic to to North America. And the other is that they're not the display of labor power that we take them to be. So, first, I want to clarify that when North Americans talk about general strikes and they imagine general strikes and they want to capture that, I think they're looking a few places. One place they're looking is uh, to Europe and also, I think, to South America, where things called general strikes do happen. But the other place that I think they're looking in their minds is they're thinking of those black and white images of like massive, massive city shutting down protest, strike, mobilizations like happened in Seattle in 1919 or Winnipeg in 1919. It's funny that it's like the 100 year anniversary of some of these things. And it's worth knowing that the stuff that's happening in Europe is very different from that. So those were massive disruptions where basically people were streaming out of work en mass and shutting the entire city down. What's happening in Europe is a very contained thing. Like I said, they're one-day events. It's hard to say how much actual workplace participation they have, but they also have to be understood, unfortunately, in the context of a massive decline in labor in in Europe. Just as unions have been declining in North America is since, let's say, the '70s and '80s, the exact same thing has been happening in Europe. They've been losing density. They've been losing members. They are losing power at the bargaining table. They are no longer able to bargain the same wage increases and concessions that they used to. They are overall becoming smaller and weaker as they have been in North America. The turn to the tactic of the general strike has to be understood in that context, because what these are, are labor unions still trying to prove that they have a mandate and some legitimacy and some ability to mobilize people. They can't really pull off workplace strikes the way that they used to. So, what they're doing instead is calling these general strikes, which are kind of amorphous, enormous protests that workers are participating in because they have the legal protection to do so. And the reason why unions are doing that is partly because they used to have a seat at the table with government where they were invited in as partners in formulating labor policy, in formulating things like social security and benefits. And that itself, you know, from a North American perspective, that may seem really cool. But in Europe, it also has to be understood that oftentimes over the last 40 years, they just basically became partners in implementing neoliberal austerity. Unions would get to negotiate with government exactly how to put a ceiling on wages so as to not have inflation in the country because the country is under pressure from the European Central Bank and the European Union institutions more generally. Right? So the general strike is partly in reaction to them having lost that seat at the table. And as I explained in my article, the reason why they lost that seat at the table is because they've become so much weaker and less effective and smaller than they used to be that government doesn't even really seem to think of them as a necessary negotiating partner anymore. Like they used to come with a big constituency that would listen to them when they turned around and said like, hey guys, here's why we should accept this particular reform or whatever. Now they're so decimated that they don't even have that constituency anymore. So government feels less of a need to reach out to them at this point. So what do they do? They're kind of acting from the outside. They're calling these general strikes and saying like, hey, we're still relevant. We can bring tens of thousands of people out into the streets.
2: Yeah, I actually was hoping you could talk a little bit more about the neoliberal experience in Europe as opposed to North America. Because one of the things you note is that in the U.S., very explicit and overt attacks on labor were experienced. For instance, Reagan destroying the Patco Union And that also happened in the UK to a certain extent. But you talk about how neoliberalism in Europe operated on a more subtle and even in some ways more nefarious level against the unions. So what did it look like there? How did unions get this weaker position and exclude it from the bargain or the government table as you talk about? And uh, how did they try to kind of manage the crisis of neoliberalism?
3: Unions in Europe have more immediate vector into government in that they are affiliated with political parties, which is sort of the case in North America as well. And those political parties, be they socialist or whatever, sometimes form governments, either independently or as part of coalitions. And so there's, I think, a bit more of a tighter infrastructure of connection between unions, political parties, and governments in Europe. But... Capitalist discipline in Europe was implemented from above, like it was in North America, but through the body of the European Union and its various institutions. So, for example, in order to join the overall euro, European currency, or to join the European Union, countries have to kind of stabilize and standardize their economies, and they have to exert discipline on their workforce in order to do that. I mentioned the example with inflation. Basically, this has to be an economy that's predictable to business. They also can't maintain a certain level of public debt. And so the quickest way that governments, of course, do that is by slashing social spending. So there was massive capitalist neoliberal discipline of austerity from above in Europe through the institutions of the European Union. And governments, which you could say, you know, had to implement that, they had these partners with the unions and the trade union configurations in doing so. So they already are at the table. They're bargaining and negotiating capacity and consulting with government, but they, they too were put in the position of having to implement that austerity. So they got to do a bit of trading in terms of what it would look like or how quickly it would be implemented or what forms it would take. There's also the flexibilization of the labor force that's going along with this. So, you know, having a workforce that has fewer rights effectively And unions were partners in implementing that. And the deals and the trades they made were ugly. And they're as ugly as some of the deals and trades you see in direct union negotiations with business in North America. You know, they will sign things away in exchange for some other concessions. But the overall horizon really was like decimating the power of workers in those countries. And people could say, well, the unions acted as a bulwark against that as much as they could, or you could say more cynically that the unions were a partner in implementing that austerity.
2: And because of that, that difference of interpretation, whether they were trying to hold the beast at bay or actually participating fully with them, you note how general strikes are not just a tactic geared towards making unions relevant to governments, but also making unions relevant to various member constituencies. So what are unions doing? kind of politically jockeying against each other by calling for general strikes? How does that serve some of these bigger union confederations?
3: Well, like I said in the example before, when the government comes out, uh, you know, in Spain or in France or in Greece or wherever and says, okay, well, we're cutting back on social spending in this area or whatever, or we're making some change to, to labor then the unions will look at each other and sort of eye each other for how they're going to react because they're on some level competing with each other for legitimacy, for members, um, because if they can successfully call a general strike, then some members might sign up with them. Again, it doesn't have to go in the form of a complete workplace election, right? Um, They're competing for relevance. They're also trying to show the government that they still have some clout, right, if they even if they don't have a strongly mobilized labor force, mobilized in and through the workplace, they can call these mass participation, general strikes that students and retirees and other non-workers can also participate in. And it does move the needle in terms of the way a party will poll, um, sometimes by as much as four, four and a half percent. And if you're heading into an election, that might make a government blink, a government that has proposed implementing a certain policy. It turns out, again, looking at the literature and the research that's been done, that these general strikes are successful, like maybe you could say 40% of the time. That's a pretty impressive number. But when you dig into that number further, it actually involves always making some kind of concession, like the unions are not successfully toppling the bad, unpopular austerity policy that the government has proposed. They're rolling it back a little, or they're slowing down its implementation, or they're trading something away in exchange for that being taken off the table. And only in 10% of cases, according to the research I read, did they score like a fairly decent rollback of the proposed policy.
2: And digging into this research and looking at Europe more specifically, it's pretty clear in your article that you find that it's not necessarily the most effective tactic for unions to employ to keep neoliberal capitalism at bay or to successfully launch like worker militancy. But you also talk about if we were to import this model into the United States, what would that even look like and whether it would be possible? So in your assessment, how possible is it to start employing general strikes in the United States?
3: So as we've said, the, the trade union confederations cannot call on them themselves without getting themselves fined out of existence, right? Institutionally, they are targets. They can, they can be censured by the government. It was very telling. People got very excited because Sarah Nelson, who's the president of the Association of Flight Attendants, made a comment about how unions should discuss the tactic of general strikes back in January when the government shutdown was still happening. And people got very excited about that because here's somebody from within the labor world who mentioned this. But if you look at her words carefully, she said that unions should discuss it. She didn't actually call for one. And, you know, it was a sort of excellent soundbite, but one that indicated that we're pretty far away from actually making that happen. Likewise, in the UK, where, as I said, they don't have the legal right to engage in political general strikes, they don't happen. The trade union confederations at one point said, well, let's look into this as a tactic. You know, let's study this. Let's look at the feasibility of this. And of course, they predictably came back and said, turns out it's not feasible because it's illegal and may be fined and sued out of existence. So on a technical and legal level, that can't be brought from within the trade unions. Now, I'm sure there are left people in North America who think, well, that's exactly why we should call for one. They can't call for one, but we as the trade union should call for one or sorry, as the leftists outside of unions should call for one. But of course, these things don't materialize with no infrastructure. If there's no workplace organizing going on, if you don't have that kind of critical mass, it's not going to come from out of nowhere. There's this weird thing where these general strikes kind of invite workers to walk off the job. Your average worker, you know, your average fast food worker or factory worker, if they were to simply walk off the job, They would get canned immediately. I mean, there's no protection for doing that, participating in that. I still believe in doing things that contravene the law. Absolutely. I believe in the wildcat strike and the illegal strike. And in fact, I think those are the tactics that are going to be the most effective. But you have to organize those things, right? You can't just put out an extremely inspiring message and expect that the critical mass will materialize Where workers are doing this in big enough numbers that they're not facing any retaliatory consequences at work, that comes from on the ground, ground level organizing, and that kind of thing was happening in Seattle in 1919, in Winnipeg in 1919. There was a massive presence of that kind of organizing, that kind of you know that that radicalism. The leftist groups were much larger. That was before the Labor Relations Act constrained both enabled but constrained unions the way we have today. It was a more sort of loose environment. So you can't, in North America, there's the technical legal reasons why you can't call a general strike, but there's also just kind of the general disorganization of labor that's the reason why you can't call that. The other thing to be aware of in relation to the European general strikes is that, as I've been describing, they go after really particular policy proposals. That's when they've been effective. They're not effective in relation to saying, we oppose austerity in general, or we oppose neoliberal capitalist discipline in general. They're effective. They Their track record, as I said, is already like a little bit squiffy, but they are effective when they are timed close to an election and they're directed at a particular political party, which currently forms a government, and they have the ability to mess up that party's chances at election. So the demands have to be very narrow. They have to be in relation to, we oppose this particular policy that you were proposing, or we insist that you roll this back or that you, whatever. Things that people in North America have been wanting to deploy general strikes in relation to, even if they were to make it happen, that has not proven successful according to the historical track record right, a general strike in general against climate change or against the scaling back of reproductive rights or what have you, those things have not been successful in, that's not the model that's being used in Europe. So people have to be very aware of that, right? That doesn't mean that we can't have massive demands like that, but it means that we have to think about how we are taking on like bite-sized steps To make progress on those issues and targeting really specific targets with demands in relation to those issues and not just saying, like, this all sucks.
2: Absolutely. I recall two years ago, I believe it was the general strike of 2017. I can't actually remember what this specific general strike was supposed to be called for. I think it was just a random day in February that people were just like, let's just have a general strike. And uh, my memory was that there were some articles being passed around where people were saying, Only participate if you're able to walk off the job for like an hour. Um, And if you're not going to lose your job, it would be precarious because of that. And it was very clear that this general strike automatically was excluding the working class, like a base of people that actually could create a crisis for production, stop operations, you know, in their tracks, and was realistically just a general strike for middle and upper class people with professional jobs, professional managerial jobs, most likely. So who are we actually trying to mobilize? What is the base we're trying to build here? Um, and how is this supposed to work?
3: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I'm not, I don't fetishize any particular sector of the economy. I don't think it absolutely has to be people working in manufacturing or absolutely has to be a warehouse worker. I think that teachers, for example, who some people consider middle class are extremely significant as a working population. The only participation that I know of in some of these general strikes have been from teachers who called in sick or college professors who have the protections of tenure. Very, very kind of limited participation. And again, even that participation involves something like canceling your class well in advance with advance notice to the administration or calling in sick or using a personal day or u- using like a floating holiday or something like that and sometimes a sick out is a strike when it shutters a school or a workplace but in general that kind of individual participation does not a strike make
2: now it is clear that these calls for general strikes also come out of a desire to really revitalize the labor movement revitalize working class power in North America. Uh, So they come from a genuine place of like wanting to build power. But you conclude by suggesting general strikes are probably not the way that we should be going to accomplish that goal. But there are other building blocks and steps along the way that we can take to revitalize worker power and militancy. So what do you feel like are some appropriate places and ways that we can start rebuilding the labor movement in North America making it vibrant again
3: and making it militant. I have two overall kind of pessimistic conclusions in the article. One is that you can't really import these general strike tactics to North America. The other is that they're a little bit weak and ineffective anyway. And then I think that there's a silver lining to that and, and, and some good news, which is, that the flip side is that the task ahead of us is not so gargantuan as to somehow manage to call every worker out of work at once in North America, where there's tremendous resistance to being able to do that in the forming of, for example, the National Labor Relations Act. And we cannot mobilize what they are mobilizing in Europe. But that means that the task ahead of us instead is actually kind of more manageable and smaller and more realistic, which is that we need to reinvigorate and reorganize workers. We need to go back to workplaces and organize workers. It's very easy for people to launch the critique that like you're too focused on the workplace. A lot of people are to be found outside of the workplace. My responses to that critique are, first of all, that most of us rely in some form or another, somewhere along the line, someone working for a wage. You know, whether it's our family members or other people who who support us, at some point, somebody's working for a wage and not like a capitalist living off of the profits, right? And second, that workplace labor remains the main source of our power. And even that organizing can involve all kinds of peripheral participation. I published an article recently about these women's auxiliaries that used to exist with unions in the middle of the last century, where they would engage in really creative forms of strike support to support the striking uh, workers and provide for their families. And then also like militant lobbying in relation to things like health and safety, lending bodies to the picket line, that kind of thing. I also think that there's other levers of power in society that students have, so on and so forth. So it doesn't mean that all we care about is organizing workers to engage in workplace strikes, but that does have to be central to where we look to rebuild our power as the working class, right? That's the the biggest lever that we have, much more so than protesting, than lobbying, than expressing our dissatisfaction. And to rebuild that working class power really requires on the ground level organizing. I mean, it, it starts with co-workers talking to each other about their problems and then ultimately formulating plans to disrupt work in order to get their needs met. I'm not the only person who thinks this. Right now, Jane McAlevey's work is very popular, for example, and with good reason. It's interesting work. She writes wonderful books and she talks about the nuts and bolts of organizing. And she's one of the people saying, look, there are clear ways that we can reorganize workers. There's There are clear strategies that we can use in order to increase worker power, increase formal union density, and increase worker power in general. Another person that talks about that is Joe Burns. He's written several books where he talks about how we need to re-tap into the tactic of the strike, even in ways that skirts the law. And of course, that has to involve actually organizing workers to do that. You know, you want a powerful, broad strike or even general strike, you need to mobilize workers to do that. It's the entire idea behind projects like labor notes and their troublemakers courses. It's the idea behind the IWW's approach and its workplace organizer trainings. And really this should not be a weird idea and and it's it's one that's been articulated in many corners and articulated very well. And that is something that we should be looking to do. There's There's no magic wand way of calling a general strike. There's no magic solution to the problems that we face as the working class. We have to build power on the ground level if we want to accomplish anything.
2: Yeah, and mentioning Jane McAlevey, the the title of her recent book is No Shortcuts. And in my impression, some of these calls for a general strike as well as like more ambitious strategies tend to be on the level of just trying to take an easy route to like successfully accomplishing power. I don't know if you share that uh, impression, but earlier (laughs) in your article, you say, you mentioned the expression that's common is amateurs talk strategy, professionals talk logistics. What if you're a worker in a workplace without a union and you're trying to build something logistically? What what should people expect? What does that grind look like? How long does that really take?
3: First to go back to the expression, and I, I feel as though there are definitely resonances between Jane McAlevey's No Shortcuts and the phrase amateurs talk strategy, professionals talk logistics. What I was taking aim at with that are the people who will like wax lyrical about how no, the general strike, it's such a wonderful tactic and labor used to do this and this is what we need. And and they're conjuring up these beautiful images of worker militancy, but they're not really telling you what it would take to get us there. So what would it take to get us there? Ultimately, I believe more and more and more that in every workplace, you need to build what I would call a committee of workers in that workplace regardless of whether it is a collection of gig workers acting as a rideshare or food delivery, or whether it is a bunch of teachers, or whether it is a factory, or whether it is a restaurant or a hotel or a hospital or what have you. Those workers need to talk to each other. It's remarkable because such a simple thing just never happens. And the resistance to making it happen is enormous. It's so hard to convince people to do this. And it's so hard as a worker to turn to your coworker and ask them if they want to get together and start talking about workplace issues. We're used to just kind of considering work to be a place of disempowerment, the end. It's a place where we take orders. It's not a place we may get together with our friends, our coworkers and complain about it. And we may be dissatisfied with work, but we generally think of it in this totally individualized, atomized way And if you think too hard about your problems, you get depressed. And that's because you're not taught to think of collective solutions. Committees need to be built in every workplace where workers talk to each other about their grievances and their issues. And eventually, they need to develop the capacity to take action, and I think direct action in relation to workflows and in relation to that workplace in order to establish their power and wield their power and get concessions. If every workplace learned how to do that, then it would be a very different scenario when just the fight between labor and business in general, between labor and government in general, and especially when it came to something like calling general strikes.
2: Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for returning to Labor Wave, Marion Garneau, editor of Organizing Work, and look forward to continuing to talk to you and seeing what articles come out on the platform.
3: Thank you so much for having me again.
1: She yeah.